0: Hey there, podcast listeners, welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. In this episode of Engendered, we speak with survivor Rosara Torres-Thomas, author of the book Abuse Hidden Behind the Badge, a memoir of her life living and suffering from the abuse and coercive control of two police officers, one a highly ranked officer in Philadelphia and another a Pennsylvania state trooper. Listeners may recall that in Episode 4 of Engendered, we spoke with Ruth Glenn, CEO and President of the NCADV, about rates of domestic violence and how certain groups of people commit higher rates than others. National trends show that law enforcement professionals are one such group. Two studies have found that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence in contrast to 10% of families in the general population. How can we expect and trust a police department, an institution, that has domestic violence offenders among its ranks to effectively protect and serve its other domestic abuse victims in the community? At the same time, domestic disturbance calls account for the highest proportion of police-related fatalities. Our guest today, Rosara suffered two retinal detachment surgeries stemming from her experiences with domestic violence and has since become an avid activist speaking out against domestic violence and more specifically the code of silence within police departments. Let's turn to my conversation with Rosara now. So Rosara, tell me about the beginning of your relationship. What was your husband like when you first met and how did the relationship progress so quickly? Can you walk us through the timeline?
1: Sure, I uh, I met Keith 35 years ago. I was staying with my sister, Mary Lou, at the time. This is back in 1983. And I remember walking into the apartment. My nephew, David, was in a hospital. He just had knee surgery, he was a little guy. and Latinos tend to talk loud and we're, we're kind of loud family, but we're good family. And as I'm walking through the door, I'm coming in with my father. Um, My father was Ishmael and I'm, you know, we're talking in Spanish. And when I walked into the apartment, I saw him. And honestly, I say it was love at first sight. He was, I, I called him my prince in shining armor. This is how I, I looked at Keith. And we, that whole entire night, when my sister introduced me to him, we just talked, and he showed me a picture of his little brother, Tony, who's now in his 40s, and he's a grandfather now. And we just talked, and he met my children. I had my children when I met keith I'm um, my from previous relationships, but he was he was everything that I dreamed of and i and I dream as you know being coming from poor, coming from north philly and i I didn't deserve. And oh well, when I when I think about it now, it's it's kind of emotional, but it, and it's kind of sad because I met him in January of 1983, and Valentine's Day of 1983 he proposed. Well, he proposed before then, but I received my engagement ring back then. And I and I thought, wow, somebody wants to marry me. I'm a mother. I'm a single mother with three children. And somebody wanted to marry me. And I thought, no way. This man who who was getting ready to go into the Navy, he was taking off um military leave from the Philadelphia Police Department. And Keith was um he was only gone for a couple months in the Navy. And in a matter of months, there was a school that he he could not get into. So he got honorable discharge. And when Keith returned back from Chicago, because that's where he was located at, he took the children and I, we we left Candom and we moved to Philadelphia. We moved to the King Sessing area. And that was in... Um, oh, dear, what was this? I can close my eyes, and I can see us moving and we were preparing you know he came home and then we started preparing for the wedding so in a matter of months he we got engaged and february we were engaged and by june 25th of 1983 we were married
0: so what um given the the speed of your courtship what did your family think how did they respond and how did keith's family respond
1: Well, Keith's family was not happy because, as I said, I was a single mother of three children. And um, I I don't come from rich. I don't come from privilege. I come from a poor background, but a modest background. And, you know, my dad, God rest his wonderful soul. I guess he was a bit confused himself because he said, you're a mother of three and your sister is a single woman with no children. Why would he choose you? And not choose your sister. And, you know, I even thought that, you know, here is a, and man, you know, my ex-husband was a very handsome man. And I was surprised myself. Why would he choose me? You know, was it really true love? Even back then and even until this day, I, I question it. Did he really love me? And, you know, people used to tell me how lucky I was because he married me and accepted my children.
0: And what about your family? Did they think um, it was the speed of the courtship was too fast? Were they concerned?
1: Not really. I guess it was like, you know, when you're a female, and I'm, I'm sure you would, you, many think about that. When will we become a burden? We become a burden. I'm like I said. I was living with my sister Mary Lou at the time, and you know I would sleep on the sofa, and the children would sleep in the second bedroom. So it was a two bedroom apartment, and you know they didn't think anything of it, but his family did. His family had issues with it.
0: So in some ways, your family, like Mary Lou, is relieved. Yeah, and and I guess what I hear also the underpainting of how all of this came together so fluidly is that everybody in the you know, equation really subscribed to the notion of women as property in a way that you were like a burden. You're, you're describing it yourself and the, the fact that you have kids, you're using society's definition of worth, which is arbitrary and artificial to define your value and status.
1: Yes. And you're 150% right. I mean, even when I met my mother-in-law, she pulled out the family um, tree. She pulled out his old report cards and she told me that I would have to start listening to classical music and to learn how to read the newspaper. I remember like it was yesterday. I remember looking at her and, and, you know, when I think about it now, I think, wow, I really didn't think that I was that worthy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I don't feel that way. But back then, a 23 year old mother of three, I, I felt that way. I felt, wow, somebody wants to marry me. Somebody is accepting my children, and he adopted the boys. So you had adopt- you,
0: you had two sons and a daughter. Yes, and, and what? How old were they at the time you met Keith?
1: George was six, Moses was four, and Olympia was a year and a half old. And why didn't he adopt Olympia? Her biological father would not allow it. Okay, but
0: he want Keith wanted to. Yes. Okay. Did uh, Olympia's biological father have an active role in her childhood growing up?
1: At the beginning, yes. But when I married Keith, no, because it was more of a jealousy thing with him than, you know, him being a part of Olympia's life. Keith was more of a dad to her. You know, she was a baby. She was just a toddler. So yeah, he so, was more.
0: So in a way, Olympia's <laughs> biological father, by not allowing Keith to adopt her at the time, he kept Olympia from having the same status as her older brothers.
1: Exactly. In the family unit. Exactly.
0: How did that impact Olympia growing up, not having been adopted and having her older brothers be adopted by Keith?
1: She had a very close relationship with Keith, so it it. It never dawned on her because even going through school and she went to kindergarten where my ex-mother-in-law taught kindergarten, she carried the name Sadler. So she, you know, she's a little, little, little girl that didn't think much of it. But as she became older and my mother-in-law treated her like her granddaughter, my mother-in-law, ex-mother-in-law loved her but when my sister-in-law Terry had her daughter all that changed that that completely changed
0: so so in other words sis, your sister-in-law Terry's daughter your mother-in-law's now biological granddaughter had a higher status in Olympia yes and how did it change was it in terms of behavior or attention, amount of time, you know, less, fewer presence, no presence? Less, fewer presence.
1: You know, my mother-in-law, she, she had some, um, I want to be polite because I, you know, my, my mother was an amazing lady, but when, when we first got married, Terry ended up moving in with us. Keith salary on the police department was not real big back then. So my mother-in-law threw Terry out and she ended up living with us. And when Terry and her would have arguments, my mother-in-law would want to take it out on me. And I didn't understand it. she would come into our home and she would yell at me. And I'm just sitting there looking like, am I missing something? What's wrong here? And it just it just went downhill from the minute I became Mrs. Keith Sadler. Mm-hmm. It did. It really did. The abuse was not only from him, but it was also from the family.
0: So can you describe first what your relationship with Keith was like? I guess this precipitated after you got married. How did the behavior change? How did he treat you?
1: The behavior changed. he didn't like the way I dressed. So I started dressing like a preppy. I've never been to prep school. I've never even walked into a prep school. And I started wearing long plaited skirts, penny loafers. I started taking temporary jobs. I started working for IBM as a receptionist. I worked at the dental school at the University of Penn. And every paycheck that I received, I would sign them over to Keith. Because I felt that as his wife and now working, it just wasn't enough. So every little money that I got as a temp, I would hand it over to Keith. And even in the house, you know, I would try to, you know, keep up with the house, keeping it clean, dealing with the children. I never felt that it was quite enough.
0: What would he say to you if you didn't get these chores done or you didn't meet the expectations he set?
1: Really didn't say anything. What started the physical abuse was Terry wanted to be the woman of the house. And I was on the phone with one of my friends and her, one of her boyfriends back then had called the house and I asked him, can you give me five minutes and call back? And... Um, I told Terry, look, um, he just called, and I asked him if he can call back, and she became very irate with me. And this is when people started wearing tips or um, artificial nails, and she dug her nails into my arm. We were in the kitchen, and I pulled back, and and I have to be honest, I will never lie to you or anybody else. I pulled back, and I punched her dead in the face. I did.
0: And so... How did Keith react? With Did he blame said to you?
1: Me, yeah. He said that the ghetto on me was coming out and we were upstairs arguing. And that's when um, he kicked me. I was sitting on the floor listening to music to avoid them because, you know, she says, wait until, you know, my brother gets home. He's going to deal with you. And I'm like, am I missing something here? And he did. He you know, he was in uniform and I was sitting on the bedroom floor and he kicked me and he said that the ghetto in me was coming out and that was the beginning we weren't we weren't even married a year and that's when the strain of the marriage the abuse started
0: so basically your sister-in-law Terry physically assaulted you you were in self-defense re- responded to her physically and your husband then retaliated physically against you because of that? Yes. Yes. And did he give you a chance to even explain what happened?
1: No, no. Only thing he said was that the ghetto in me was coming out. And I said it has nothing to do where I grew up and where I come from. It has to do with respect.
0: How often did these behaviors take place?
1: That was the beginning of the hitting and the beginning of my depression. I became very sad. As I said, I did temp jobs and, you know, I would sign over and he finally asked his sister to leave and his mother got angry at us and his grandmother got angry at us. And his grandmother would call because she lived right around the corner from us. And and she would tell Keith that he can have a million wives, but he only has one mother, one sister, one grandmother. And poor Keith, you know, my at, at that time, I felt sorry for him because he to me, he was clueless and. They would, um, they would have his uncle Bernard that would visit around the corner, and his aunt Millie, and we weren't invited because they didn't want me there. And he, you know, you can see the sadness in his face, but then I was, I was getting it—not the physical, but more the verbal. And you know, no matter what I did, I never felt that it was quite enough.
0: And. Did you ever express how you felt about his behavior towards you? No,
1: no. I just became very depressed and I worked and I worked and I became depressed.
0: Why didn't you tell him how you felt?
1: Because from the beginning, when he made those comments to me about because I grew up in the ghetto and, you know, I I knew that no matter what I said, his his mother and his sister and his grandmother were going to be the top priority that I was not going to be the priority.
0: Were you afraid of him?
1: In that point, yes. When he hit me, yes. He was a big guy. He's not a little guy. He's over five ten. And back then I say, you know, he was like two hundred pounds. Now I think he's heavier. I don't I don't talk to him.
0: And and how tall are you? I'm 5'7". When he was physically abusive towards you or verbally attacking you, were the kids around to witness
1: it? Yes. They started seeing things. My mother, I had gotten sick. I had, um, my ovary had ruptured and my mother came to help me. And my mother would look at me and she goes, I know something's going on, but you're not talking. And I said, what do you mean, mom? She goes, something is happening and you're not talking. And she was right. The abuse started the minute I became Mrs. Sadler. It was not only physical, but it was verbal. It was mental. It was financial because I never felt like I had any right to say anything that I, you know, having the Sadler name, you know, it didn't matter. I had no right. I didn't have the right. And the family made that very clear. They made that very clear.
0: How did your children respond? Did they ever say anything to you about what they witnessed with Keith? Did they ever no, say anything to him?
1: N- not until they became older.
0: So basically they were just quiet witnesses and... Yes. Uh, were they afraid as well? Oh, yeah. How did it manifest their fear? Like, did it impact their health, their school, their behavior?
1: School, Moses, he is now going to be 40 at the end of the year. And, and I, you know, I mean, all three of them are really smart, smart kids, you know, and. It affected his schooling. It affected him, period, because he idled Keith. He idled Keith so much that he wanted to be a police officer. And Keith told him that he would never recommend him for the police department. And that crushed him. And Moses, he just went downhill after that.
0: Why did Keith think that he would not be a, a good police officer?
1: Keith is very controlling. He wants to control everything and anything. And that's, that's him. And I guess because, you know, Moses, <laughs> Moses was always, he's a lot like me, very sociable. He socialized with everyone, jokes around, you know, he's done stand up comedy, you know, just, just in all. He was an amazing kid. No one can tell me differently. But I think when he started seeing things, I really think it affected him. And when he was in school, him and his friend would be running all over the school to the point, Terry, that that Harvard School convinced us that Moses should be put into a psychiatric hospital to for observation. And. I, I felt like I had no say-so, and that happened, and that poor boy, when I sat down with all these doctors, they told me there was nothing wrong with Moses, that Moses was an above average child, so keep in mind that for all these years, I carried this guilt, because I I didn't speak up the way I should have.
0: Did. Any of the school officials, the teachers, the counselors, the social workers, had they any idea what was happening at home for Moses? No. And he didn't express it to them either?
1: No. I mean, people thought that Keith was the golden child of the Philadelphia Police Department, that he was supposed to be the next Philadelphia commissioner. But that didn't happen. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know I hear story after story of people who work with children, people who are who work and are trained uh, to help survivors, and they don't seem to have the skill set in terms of understanding trauma, understanding signs of domestic violence, to identify that something is wrong and be able to take the next necessary steps to help. No,
1: you know. And Terry, when when um George and, and Moses were in um junior high, Keith and I had separated back in nineteen eighty seven and we were bickering in the car and he had on his graduation ring. Well he got angry at me and he got me on the side of the eye and my whole My whole eye blew up like a balloon. And my boys saw that and they cried. They cried. Because, like me, they were in silence. And
0: like you had stated earlier, they loved Keith. Yes. Yes.
1: Very much. Very much. At any point...
0: Did you share what was happening outside of Keith's family with your friends, your family, with neighbors, people that you thought could actually help?
1: My neighbors knew that he was beating on me because they would hear me screaming and they would hear the struggles. But I confided in his grandmother, Arlene. Arlene knew that he was beating on me. His father kind of figured out when I end up having my retinal detachment. And he did call me to ask me how I was doing. So because, you know, retinal detachment does not happen with someone blowing in your eye. It's blunt trauma.
0: The neighbors, if they knew, they never did anything. No, he's he's a cop. Did they ever state that directly? Like, we wish we could help, but we're scared to?
1: In my book... I remember when he caused my retinal detachment, I called his aide, Edgar Cologne, and I begged him, please come get him. Please help me. And his response to me was, Rosa, I can't help you. He's the boss. He's my boss. And he couldn't help me. And then I have people now, after all these years, when I decided to write my book, People tell me they remember they remember when he was beating on me they remember, and i'm like but but they couldn't help me but i'm I'm just one of so many Terry that are either dating or married or the mistress I've met more mistresses than I met wives of police officers
0: you know you were mentioning earlier about the financial abuse, when you were working temp jobs, you had to give your paycheck to him and you didn't really have any say about how to spend the money. You also mentioned when we had spoken that you started school at some point. What was Keith's reaction to that?
1: At first he was fine with it. My dream was always to become a paralegal. Um, it, It was always my dream. I love law. But he told me, no, you're selfish. I'm trying to move up in rank. I need someone to be with the children. So when the retinal detachment happened, I was taking classes in writing because it was always my dream to write about the story of my family and the struggles my mother went through not realizing that here I wrote the struggles I went through as a survivor of police officer involved in domestic violence. So I had to drop out of school or I had to stop working because Keith was in study group and Keith needed me to be at home all the time to watch the kids.
0: So when you dropped out, how close in time was that to when you eventually separated from him?
1: My first retina detachment was March of nineteen ninety nine. Keith was gone April of nineteen
0: ninety nine. Oh, you mean he was he left the house? He, he, yes. You separated.
1: Yes, he left. So
0: was that because you had an order of protection that required no. him to stay away?
1: Oh no, 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 no. No, a, I mean, I would share with you how a lot of women like myself, I wanted my marriage. I begged him, please come back. And this is how I felt that I didn't care enough about me that I gave up my protection order to protect him. Yes, he when when I got my protection order, Keith had my. The the phone cut off, the electricity cut off, and he and he would not give anything to help me with the um, household. So here I was and I have all this documentation I had to sign to give up my protection order in order to receive income. I have all the documentation. Olympia was the only one that was living at the house. He made George and Moses leave. The minute George and Moses turn of age, he made them leave. And Olympia was the only one. So here I am in court and I didn't want to give up my protection order. And I'll share with you that Keith will come around. He still wanted to fornicate. And that's another way a lot of men In his position, any man of power, oh, I got her like that. I have her, you know, I can screw her and then just leave. And I got my protection order. But then he had things shut off. And then he had my best friend appear at one of the protection order hearings to testify against me. And she knew that he was hitting me. She saw black eyes. She knew it. When I went to the court and in Philadelphia back then, no one is allowed to be upstairs other than the victim and the abuser. But he had his FBI agent friend, Johnny Kissinger, his other friend who owed a a fleet of limousines that was Frank Sinatra, and, and the cops all knew him there, even the sheriff. So I was upstairs alone. But one of the things that will always stick in my brain, my daughter made it very clear to him and his attorney that she would not lie for him. But everybody knew he was hitting me. My mother-in-law said to me one time, what did you do to him for him to hit you? Uh, it, it's things that, that are just stuck there. And as survivors, we try to think, why is that memory still there? Okay, we heal. People look at my face and they say, "Oh, well, you know, she didn't have retinal detachment. Please believe me. I walk with a CNI cane. Yes, I've had retinal detachment in both eyes.
0: It sounds like the whole community around you were complicit, partly because of fear, but partly because of, would you say, an unwillingness to disturb the status quo? their own perception of how things should be?
1: Oh, Terry, I, I remember when I was trying to get my order and we were on the phone bickering and he said to me, he goes, no one's going to listen to you. They all think you're crazy. He had me 302'd. He had me admitted into a psychiatric ward. yes. And they wouldn't listen to me. But, you know, I said to myself, Terry, I said, one day, maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, but one day someone will hear my cries. Someone will.
0: One day. When, when they didn't listen, for example, when you were committed, was it less that they didn't believe you or that they needed to comply to stay safe themselves? to save themselves so they knew that you were okay that you were sane oh, yes. but they needed yes. but they had to do this anyway
1: yes i mean i became suicidal i i would i would be a liar if i said oh no my god i was just perfect no i became suicidal i didn't understand i my father raised seven of us My father never put his hands on any of the women or the men in the family, not on my mom. So I didn't understand why this man felt the need to go at me. Yes, I did cheat on Keith. I did. I'm not going to, as I said, not perfect. I did. And when he found out I was cheating, I paid dearly for it. He would go for my face, always for my face. And And I said to him, you know, one day you're going to cause me permanent damage. You keep going for my face. And he did. He caused me permanent damage.
0: At some point when Keith was out of the house, he started dating Denise.
1: He started dating Denise beforehand. How did that change
0: your relationship with Keith, if at all? Did it change the way he treated you? Was he...
1: Uh- oh, yes. Yes. I mean, you can tell the, the the physical. He still wanted to have a physical relationship with me and Denise. And I'm like, when the physical happened, I'm like, this is not Keith. This, this is someone else. And I kept telling him, I said, I know there's someone else. I can't prove it, but I know that there's someone else. And he would say, you're crazy. And I was right. I was right.
0: Was he less violent, less controlling when Denise no, was in the he, picture?
1: No, he was still the same. But he wanted to he wanted to fornicate Denise and me.
0: It sounded like when you first described that, when that continued during the time you had the order of protection, it sounded like it could be a way for him to keep you emotionally attached so that you could be more willing to let the order of protection go.
1: Exactly.
0: Which you did.
1: Yeah, I did. And I, I, I sent you a copy of the letter that I sent to um, Mayor John Street and many council people. I did not give up my order because I was not in fear. I gave up my order because I had no choice. And I tell them, you keep, you keep um, awarding these men and not realize what's really taking place. I remember trying to get help from John Street. No luck. No luck. Who is this? Mayor John Street. He was the mayor of Philadelphia.
0: So he was effectively Keith's supervisor or boss. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, he's the top guy. And his top guy was Sylvester Johnson. He was the police commissioner back then.
0: Sylvester knew that Keith was abusive.
1: Yes, they all knew.
0: How common was it... In the department, do you know if other wives of police officers in the, in the Philadelphia Police Department were also abusive?
1: Yes, many. There are many, but what makes it even more sad there are many all over. I remember years ago, I was. Um, this is this is when I started getting involved as an activist. And it was a Mrs. Williams, I remember Taisha Williams, and her husband was a Philadelphia police officer. And he was he had an affair with his partner who happened to be a female. And she, Mrs. Williams tried to get out of the marriage, but he killed her. And and when we when we go to the commissioner or we go to the mayor and we ask for help and we beg for help. You don't hear us. You hear the officer. There are so many that have died by the hands of their either husbands or boyfriends or lovers because you don't hear us. You hear them. So you would rather protect the officer because he holds that position. We're nobody. And this is this is how I felt. And here I am, you know. What 35 years later, that's how I felt, that I was nobody, that I was not important.
0: So what was it like for you to have a get your divorce from Keith? Was it something that he opposed? Did he put barriers in the way, or did he uh, make it easy for you to leave?
1: No. Um, well, one of the things about him, he didn't want me to have my part of the pension. As as his wife, I was entitled to a part of the pension. And the about a month before we went into our final divorce, his wife now and her girlfriend had cornered me in a diner. I didn't know who she was. And they had me in the bathroom, and they were saying things, uh, you know, this is a small world. And I'm like, who is this? And, and I asked her, you know, you know, what's your name? And she gave me a nickname and I said, no, what is your real name? And Denise said, that's right. I'm Denise Garcia. And I, and I'm looking at her and I said, Oh my God. I said, I'm, I'm no threat to you. I said, I don't want him. She goes, I know you just want the pension and the um, spousal support. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, wow. I said, did you forget that I am still his wife? You know, and when I went into the courts and she reminded me that they live together, that he's raising their girls, as she shared with me. And I guess he thought I forgot that she had told me all of this. And when we went into the courts, the the courts are questioning me, who did I live with? You know, they thought I was living with another man. I was living with my daughter, Olympia. And I said, I live with my daughter, Olympia, and my grandchildren. That was just when she had um, two. And when they asked him, and he says he lived alone, I lean over to my attorney, and I said, cross-examine him. And that's when my attorney cross-examined him. And he lied not only to me, to the um, magistrate and to the lawyers, and they all looked directly at him. And I was granted my part of the pension. So, and I got the quadro, which many women, and please to your listeners, to women who are married with men with pensions, make sure you get the quadro because they will try to screw you every way possible in the courts. The quadro will make sure that you are entitled to what you deserve as as once their wives. Yes.
0: Once you got the financial situation resolved, the divorce was final and you were able to move on. Mm -hmm. Did you have any contact with each other? Because he still was the father of your adopted father of your two sons.
1: Terry, you know what he would do? When the holidays would come around because he would never invite them to his new home with Denise, he would meet them at Burger King parking lot or Home Depot parking lot. Excluded when he became chief inspector for the Philadelphia Police Department. He did invite them to the ceremony. They were excluded when he became the chief of police of Lancaster. And he knows that when you hurt the children, you hurt me. So no. He never knew that I was writing. He never knew that my whole, my entire plan was to write my story. He never knew.
0: So after your divorce, he basically didn't have, he had minimal contact with your sons.
1: Absolutely.
0: And in particular, during the holidays, as you were yep. saying, he made it clear that they were excluded.
1: Yes, As a matter of fact, when George was little, and I'll I'll say this, when he was little and we first separated, George wanted to see him. And he asked George, well, why why do you want to see me? Why don't you go look for your real father? And that broke Georgie's heart. George said, but you are my real father. So that's something that stays with my children. Here they are, uh, adult men. George will be 42 in December. Moses will be 40. Olympia will be 37 next month. And there are things that they remember that does hurt. It, the Olympia was the one that had to pull him off of me. He had me, when he got me across the face and caused my retinal detachment, he had me in the kitchen by the throat and she pulled him off of me. These are things that they live with now. So no matter what people say, years can go on. The memories of the abuse will always be there. It will always be there.
0: How do you think the experience impacted your children's relationship with their romantic partners, with their friends, with themselves?
1: Not very well. Not very well. Moses had some very sad relationships. And, you know, it. He, he would say, you know, Mom, I put this many years. And I said, Moses, I understand. I, I know that you invested a lot of years in this relationship. I said, but, you know, God has a reason for everything. And that's how I looked at it. Olympia, she has three children, but she's a wonderful mother. She's a single parent. And I'm, and I'm so proud of her. George, George is married now. Um to my daughter-in-law Sylvia and he is raising Araceli, her daughter, but she's my granddaughter too. So I say I have five grandchildren. And I I said no matter what, nothing nothing is a is perfect, but you know, you work at it. You work at it.
0: What is it that you think has Impacted them the most in terms of the relationship. Is it the pain? Is it the you know the grief rather? Is it the self worth? Is it the way it impacted you and maybe feeling guilt that they're shouldering unnecessarily because it's not for them to hold? Yeah. What do you think it is? I,
1: I think is everything. But one of the things that always would would stick in my brain, and I remember like it was yesterday. He would always tell them that they weren't going to amount to shit. That they were nothing. And and like I said, as as when they were little, it was to me, it was like education. Education is important. But as they got older, he would say to them that they weren't going to amount to shit. But I would just say, don't listen to him. You can be anything you want because you're amazing young men. But it was so hard and difficult to say, don't listen to him because they idled him. They thought he was like the greatest. And I used to say, please don't listen to him. So it didn't matter what I said. They felt that his word was gold.
0: Do you think that if there were another male role model that could model healthier, positive behaviors in their life, that that would have made a difference? Yes. Or, yes, I mean, I were there other role models? I, like I your, have did you have siblings?
1: Brother. Yes, I, I am the youngest of nine. My mother had nine of us, but they weren't, sadly, they weren't, you know, at that time in their lives, they weren't, high, I wouldn't even confide in them. Oh, Terry, I carry so much guilt and shame. I couldn't tell my parents that this man was beating on me. I couldn't tell them it was, it was the shame I carried. It was everything, the shame, the guilt. Maybe if I did something, maybe if I was, um, if my hair was longer, if I was thin enough, maybe I didn't feel like, because his family had a thing about light-skinned people. You had to be light-skinned in order to be accepted into their family. Being Boricua, being Puerto Rican was a no-no, but I was light-skinned with long, good hair. That's how they looked at me. So here is a a light-skinned African-American family who would look down, even even on their own people. If you were brown-skinned, they really weren't accepted into the family. They, They were a part of an organization called Jack and Jill. And Jack and Jill, back in 1938, if you didn't pass the paper bag syndrome, you were not accepted into this organization. So this is the organization that Keith and his family were a part of. So... I My brothers were into their life and I didn't look to them because I carried so much shame and guilt. My brother would say to me, Ishmael, he would say, well, why didn't you say anything? I said, are you kidding me? If if I said something to you, you would want to beat his ass and then he would end up killing you. He would have shot you. Let's be real. He would have shot you. So I had to I had to hide What was going on? I wouldn't see my family when I had the black eyes. I wouldn't see. But his grandmother, Arlene, God God bless her, you know, she knew. She knew. And she carried, you know, what was going on to her death. She knew he was beating on me.
0: She couldn't do anything? No. No. What was it that helped you get through day to day all of that uncertainty and fear and shame that you carried with you?
1: When I lost my dad, my mom died in 2003 and then my father died in 2007. And when I lost both my parents, I stood with my dad until he went home and I, and I felt his last heartbeat. I, I went and got help. I went to women in transition here in Philadelphia and Going there for a year and going through the therapy with my other sisters of domestic violence, I realized, my God, I am a dynamic person. I'm a good person. I'm not an evil person. I never committed a crime. And here I was getting my behind whipped by this man who says he loves me and he's going to stop But then I realized that I didn't love myself enough, Terry. And the most important thing to my sister, you got to love yourself because they don't love you enough because they're putting their hands on you. So, Terry, I learned to love me. And once I loved me, that was it. I, I decided, even with the flaws that is in my book because of the way my vision is, I was going to come out with the story and abuse hidden behind the badge has made me free. And I came through that dark tunnel. I felt like I was in the dark tunnel that at the end of the tunnel, I see the light, but I couldn't get there. And I'm free. I'm free. You
0: spoke about your family being loving. Yes. How does one come out of that experience not loving oneself. It has to be something external from that, I guess. I'm wondering what you think those contributing factors are.
1: My grandchildren. When my my first granddaughter came into my life, Ileana, she will never go through what I went through. She is such a strong young woman now. She's 18 and she's amazing. And I promised myself that... None of them would ever experience what I experienced. And then I decided to help other survivors. I will go into the courts where women against abuse refused to help me because of who he was. They wouldn't help me. I, I have to be real. They knew and I reached out to them, but they wouldn't help me. So these wonderful grandchildren gave me that inner spirit and my mother's voice and my father telling me to continue the fight because I deserve better. So that's exactly what I did.
0: Looking back now, what do you think might have planted a seed in you or helped you be able to make a move more easily to recognize that you are worthy of being safe and and secure and and happy. Is there anything that someone from the outside looking in can do to nurture that?
1: One of the things that I learned that we cannot guilt, shame, or blame another sister survivor. Don't do it. You know, don't ask her, why did you stay? Don't ask her, well, what did you do? They need support. And I will not Blame another survivor, I will not guilt them, and I will not shame them i won't i refuse i I've talked to women all over and even in the u k because one of the things I said I would never, never blame shame or guilt another sister survivor, so I carry that with me when someone tries to guilt me and believe me, I got attacked verbally by some of his friends because I wrote the book. I'm I'm looking at them. I said, I'm dynamic. And I said, I'm an award-winning author. I said, What can you say about yourself? I said, I'm a good person. So I I won't let them try to pull me back down. I keep pulling myself up. Believe me, Terry, it has been difficult because we carry the wounds. We we're a little broken, but we're not dead. And I always keep that in mind. That I always tell them look, we're not dead, but we're a little broken. You got to love yourself. They almost completely broke me, but I love me. And And the love that I carry within me, I have for everybody. Anywhere I go, I just talk. Anyone I talk to, I just love talking to people and giving them that love and respect that they deserve. And that's who I am.
0: And how do we grow that love for oneself to, as a sort of protective shield from being vulnerable to this kind of abuse and manipulation?
1: Well, one of the things is that our legal system has to stop protecting these wonderful cops. Or any abuser, because when I went into the court system and I see what I see and I see how these abusers still, when they're waiting to go into the courtroom and I see these peacocks. And when I say peacocks, I'm talking about police officers and I'm talking about sheriffs walking around as these abusers are attacking their victims right there in the court, yelling at them and screaming, and they're not doing anything. A lot of them fail to forget that when the abuse that they cause, you're also causing damage to these children. So we as a system have to make sure that this does not continue. What this president is doing to those children by putting them in cages, that's something that's going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. It's damage that they cause and they refuse to be held accountable for that. And I'm sorry for yelling. I get very passionate about the children. They must be held accountable. And our justice system has to change. They have to enforce the laws that they already have on the books. But this wonderful person, Chump, is is really doing major damage. So to our legal system, to our court system, to... You have to stop and you must be held accountable for what you're doing. So we as parents, as mother and grandmothers, we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that this not continue to happen. This is where our voices come in. This is what you're interviewing me here today is allowing me to tell them, you must be held accountable for the actions and for the damage that you have caused. So we have to make sure that we're there for our children. No matter who they are, it doesn't matter who they are. We must.
0: How are your children today? I, I know you've br- briefly spoke about their relationships and some of the sorrow and pain that they carry with them. But what are you doing, or what are they doing, to heal themselves?
1: Olympia, she works for McGee. She's an awesome um, CNA. She's just an awesome. She's an awesome mom. And I watch her with the children, the little guy. It it's I'm about family, Terry. Family is important. And I keep telling them, no matter what, my love for you, I would carry on with me to my next journey. I no matter what, my love for you is unconditional. I would not you know, not want to avoid you like he did. Now he tries to be more in their life, but it took you 19 years to kind of be in their life now. And it's a lot of years later that you excluded them. Me, I've always been there no matter what. So we as parents, as ma- as aunts, uncles, grandparents, everything, we must be there. My nephew, my great nephew Angel is now working for Google, and he relocated to San Francisco. So I'm proud of him. This is when they say um, it takes a village to raise a child. So I have a very strong and loving relationship with my children. I do. I'm blessed. And my grandchildren. I'm blessed.
0: If you could say anything to other survivors um, out there who are in the midst of raising their kids and not really certain what the outcome is going to be, how their kids are going to be as an adult and what kind of impact being a witness to domestic violence or being abused as a child will have on them, what can you say to those parents?
1: They, they should get help for their children. That's a must. Don't put them on any narcotics because that's not a good thing. But to let them know that the love that they feel for their children is unconditional and though no matter what, no matter what he or she says, because domestic violence is not a gender thing, it's it's a people thing, you love them unconditionally. You support them in everything and anything they want to do. Yes, you love them. You know, I know some people go, oh, she's kind of mushy about love. Well, that's all I have left and faith. All I have is faith and the love that I feel inside. That's all I have left.
0: And for you, part of your healing was obviously the writing and sharing yes. your story. Yes. Have you encouraged your children also to give voice to their experiences in some way?
1: I tried, but they didn't want to. I tried to tell them you know, write about it, express, but they didn't want to. You know, I, I think they're still protecting dad. They still want to protect him. Even with all the damage that has caused me physically, they still want to protect dad. And, you know, that's what we did. That's what we did. We protected him, but we didn't protect ourselves.
0: Well, that sounds like a good place to end our conversation is yes. protect ourselves, love ourselves, love our children. Yes. Thank you so much, Rosara.
1: Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. You're
0: very courageous. You're an inspiration. And I wish you continued light and progress in your healing, in your
1: journey. Thank you. And you continue doing the amazing work you're doing, Terry. I appreciate you. And I feel blessed to know you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you found this conversation informative
0: and activating, hopefully, enough for you to learn more and take action. If we truly expect our law enforcement and legal systems to be more effective in protecting women and children and all members of our community, it seems like the first step is for these institutions to look internally at who they are recruiting and rewarding and the mindsets that those professions attract, seek to reinforce, and whether or not those mindsets may be at odds with the goals that these institutions are trusted to deliver to the public. As our guest, Phyllis B. Frank shared in episode three, addressing our white male supremacist culture as a root cause of violence, as a necessary but insufficient remedy to eradicating male violence against women and all forms of gender-based violence. Please check out the resources we shared in our show notes about this important issue. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at K-A-N-D-U-I-T dot com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.